Saturday. It is November 11th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. But Michael, this week we don't even care about New York City because it is all things London in the airmail universe. It is our second ever special issue dedicated to young London, the hip, cool, interesting, creative people who are making our city the very best place to be. And you and I can fight about this at a later date because for today, it's just the truth. I'm not fighting with you. I'm here all in support. It's a fantastic issue and it's made for a great show this week. We've got Graydon Carter, our co-editor, who's going to join us to tell us all about this week's issue and the special edition of airmail. And then you're probably aware of how London and cabbies carry what's called the knowledge and ability to navigate the city without a map. And the acclaimed writer Will Self is here to share his version of the knowledge, the treasures he's discovered over a lifetime of walking your current city, Ashley, London. Speaking of knowledge, Stuart Heritage is going to join us to tell us about his afternoon with the gentleman who is often called, quote, the best connected man in Britain, as well as, quote, the man who invented the 60s. One thing's for sure, he's far from common. And finally, it's been said that the U.S. and the U.K. are two nations divided by a common language. And Hannah Betts is going to swing by to discuss a certain four-letter word beloved by the Brits, but not so beloved by Americans that validates this divide more than any other. And let's just say it's a word that I can't even bring myself to say, Ashley. So I'm not sure how we're going to get through that segment, but it'll be interesting. So stay tuned. Ashley, where would you like to begin? You're our guide to London today. Where are we going to go? I'm tempted to start the episode with Hannah Betts talking about the see you next Tuesday word. But no, we don't want to lose all of our listeners right away. Instead, we're going to start with our co-editor, Graydon Carter, the man, the myth, the legend. Graydon is here to explain why we are focusing on London in the first place. Welcome, Graydon. Great pleasure to be here. In the Airmailverse, we cover a lot of the UK, politics, culture, society, even the occasional grifter. Why is that? I mean, it's the closest country to ours, uh, sort of psychologically, I think. We speak similar languages. We have a story in the issue that shows that we don't speak a similar language. I know for myself, I'm more of a Francophile, but my wife is English. And also, we're here for a month because this is a test run that my wife insists on for case Trump gets reelected. I remember... Paul Newman saying one of the proudest things of his life was that he was on Nixon's enemy list. And I probably am on Trump's enemies list. But I think that if he gets back in, an ocean will do us a world of good, an ocean apart. Okay, well, this is great news for me personally. I cannot believe I'm hoping for a Donald Trump victory. And yet here we are. Well, one of my sons lives here, too. So that makes it even more heavenly. Why was this the right moment to do a London issue? I have no idea. It was your idea. I thought yours idea, Nash and George's. So I'll tell you why. It's a good time because London's politics are just catastrophic, but the city is very alive. And being here in London, like mostly downtown New York, it's a city of young people. And if you have a city of young people, that's energy. Like, I think Paris has, it's getting better, but Paris was a city of older people and you lose the energy of that. I think London is very much alive and it always fights outside of its weight class. It's really amazing in terms of the creative industries, whether it's art or music or theater or whatever it is. 
writing, I mean, it punches above its weight. We hate to ask you to pick favorites, but do you have any stories in the issue that you found particularly exciting? There's one about a word that my English male friends use all the time and that I didn't realize that women in England use all the time, but that is never used in the United States. I'm not going to say what the word is, but my best friend over here calls me this word all the time. Don't worry, we'll get to that later. We've got Hannah Betts on the show as well. Let her say it, yes. And we should say, I'm sure he uses that affectionately, as we've come to learn. Out of annoyance with me as well. This is Henry Porter. He had COVID and got a little sick during the pandemic, and I realized he was back to normal when he used this word with me. And I thought, okay, my old Henry is back. So, Graydon, you're in town for a month. What is your favorite London neighborhood? Well, we're in Chelsea because we've stayed at this little old hotel for years. And unfortunately, it's going through a renovation. So we're staying in an apartment right next door and owned by the hotel. And actually, funny enough, my two favorites, I like the street outside where the Strigi newsstand is, where the airmail Strigi newsstand is. And I love German Street and I love Pavilion Road. We just had lunch on Pavilion Road. I love Pavilion Road. Okay, wait, Otto Lange, Granger or elsewhere? Granger and there's a place called By the Sea, By the Sea, where we went for lunch today. Then this wonderful view of humanity down there. Great. And I was just wondering, we have a story in this week by Will Self about walking London and the sort of like how it lives in one's mind. And I was curious to know, when was the first time you went to London? And do you have a memory from that first visit? The first time I went to London was after the war. We moved here 1951-ish. I was like two. And we lived on Doylecart Island, which was owned by an uncle of mine. And London was still very black and white, very gray, and still bombed out. And that is my memory of London. And one of the things I used to do always when I came here was go visit Churchill's War Rooms, which is one of my favorite sort of museum aspect of London. Any agenda points? Any restaurants you need to frequent? Well, big dinner with Ruthie Rogers on Thursday, which is really sweet. She's having a dinner for us. I'll see a lot of friends and I'll see my kids a lot. I have four of my kids here during this period. And one thing we will miss is one of the great institutions in England that I wish they'd bring to New York, and that's the pantomime. And we love the one at the palace with Julian Cleary and Nigel Havers, and it kills me that we'll leave just before that start. Also, I'm looking forward to the new restaurants from Jeremy King. He's got three of them coming along, and Jeremy used to be my partner at the Monkey Bar and was a wonderful partner, and whatever he puts his hand to turns out pretty well. Great. My last question, we have a piece by Stuart Harris this week on Nikki Hazlitt. Do you think it's something to aspire to to end up on Nikki's tea towel or something to avoid? Well, first of all, Nikki, I've known Nikki forever and he is one of the great characters in life. And one time we were walking through the Oscar party and somehow the name Ava Gardner came up and I said, Nikki, we've got three men here who slept with Ava Gardner and Lana Turner. And he goes, and who are they? I said, we've got Artie Shaw, Bob Evans, and Kirk Douglas. And Nikki stops for a minute and he says, and I've slept with one of them. <laughs> I won't tell you who. I love Nikki and these tea towels are asinine. He thinks almost everything in all her life he thinks is common. But I think that they're incredibly charming. He gets a kick out of them and it just sort of keeps him in the mix, which I think is very important. We love him. Well, Graydon, we love you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming to London. Go to bed. Guys, thank you so much. Thank you, Graydon. We'll see you soon. Have a great day. Okay, now that we know why we're here, Michael, can we please talk to Hannah Betts about the See You Next Tuesday word? Go for it. <laughs> Yay! Listeners, if this is not your thing, we understand. You can sign off now. But we're going to start with Hannah Betts because, yes, we speak the same language here, but there is one particular word that you can get away with saying here. And in fact, one may say it's even encouraged. And Hannah Betts is here to tell us all about it. She's a columnist and a features writer for the Times of London, among other publications. And we're thrilled to have her. <laughs> So 
Hannah, before we kick this off, do you think we should use the word? I most certainly do, but I am in your hands. What do you guys reckon? Okay, well, if the Apple podcast people insist that we censor, we will throw in a few bleeps. But for now, let's start. Hannah, okay, I feel weird saying this. This It's because I'm an American, but the word cunt, it's a big deal in the UK. Why is that? We love it, Ashley. We can't get enough of it. We are cunts. We are pro-cunts. Cunts are us. I mean, you probably heard in our recent COVID inquiry that the word popped up rather a lot. And a few of my media colleagues were quite sanctimonious about it, which I thought was amazingly hypocritical. It is the most used word in the media, in sort of London, in what we like to call the middle class media elite or whatever. It gets used all the time. It's omnipresent. And Hannah, how do you use it? Well, I love it. I am a long-term user. When I was doing my research at Oxford, I was once told that I was to the C word what Tarantino was to the F word. I use it with everybody. I use it as a feminist gesture. I use it as a normal life gesture. It's very useful. It's got a kind of functional ambiguity that allows it a range of meanings. So it can be negative, but also neutral. And also hotly positive. So it's a term of affection, so to speak. Give me an example where it's positive. My friends and I call each other cunts all the time. I call my brother a cunt. My brother is a cunt. He would be happy to be outed as a cunt. His daughter is only five at the moment. But I know it's going to be a word she uses. She is a mini-me, and I look forward to her acceding to it. Just perhaps not quite yet. Although I do have friends whose children use the term and it kind of teaches them how to swear because they're allowed to use it at home, but then they're not allowed to say it in front of people who banally find it problematic. So if I'm hearing you correctly, Hannah, I mean, the C-U-N-T word would be like, if you said that affectionately, it's sort of like here in the U.S. calling someone the, you're a little F-U-C-K-E-R. Yeah, it's kind of nice. I like it when people say it to me. I sometimes think of it like the way we use mate here. It can have a real fondness. All right, so you clearly know your stuff. Did you do a thesis at Oxford about the word? No, but I did do research into Elizabethan pornography and erotica. And it is a word that crops up then. I mean, it's a very old word in English. We're not quite sure. But in the medieval period, it crops up. It may well be a term that was used without much sense of insult and vulgarity around that time. It crops up in dictionaries. But then towards the 1800s, it becomes more of a taboo term until, of course, we have it cropping up in the D.H. Lawrence Chatterley trial when its sort of peppering of Lady Chatterley's lover is seen as one of the reasons why you wouldn't want your servants or your women folk to read it. Yes, they might faint. Well, quite. Hannah, you're well-traveled. We know this. Yeah. (laughs) Have you ever used this word outside of the UK? And if so, how has that worked out for you? Well, I did use it at the Modern Languages Association in Chicago in my early 20s. And it was met with a kind of quizzical horror. I am aware that it doesn't travel well, and I often do have to explain it, which was part of my motivation in suggesting it for this, the historic London issue of airmail, because I am aware that in America, there was that time 
in the early 90s when the late Senator John McCain was said to have used it to attack his wife or Samantha Bee felt forced to apologise when she described Ivanka Trump in C-bomb terms before the pandemic. And so I know it can be considered incendiary and also misogynist, which is the opposite of what I would be trying to do in using it. The way I always hear it used in London is to describe someone being drunk. Oh, well, I mean, we Brits are always drunk, as I hope prove at the ML party upcoming next week. I mean, drunk is our mode. That is what we do best. I'm never not hearing it. And I suppose that was my aim in writing this, not to be clickbaity, but to be genuinely useful for all our American friends. I think it's useful. You don't sound convinced. <laughs> I love it. Come on, well, you can't get with the scene. <laughs> no, I'm all in. I'm just tiptoeing around how many bleeps we'll have in this episode. But It's maybe easier for women, isn't it? I think so, yes. We have more license, I think. I mean, although the, a lot of the younger, my sort of Gen Z male friends use the term, it doesn't occur to them that it could be misogyny. They would see it as a vaginal celebration. Not touching that one. <laughs> Ashley, can you help me out here? Hannah, of all the cunts I know, you're a favorite. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes. Just about. Yeah. My name is Hannah and I am a cunt. My friends are cunts. My family, they're certainly cunts. Let's build a better world, a utopia in which it's not an insult. It's a wonderful thing. Thank it's you, Hannah. Thank you. Okay, on a more civilized note, Will Self is here to tell us all about the London that nobody knows. He is a journalist, political commentator, and broadcaster. He is currently a professor of modern thought, writer of nonfiction. He's published many short story collections. Once again, making the rest of us look bad, but we are thrilled to have him here. Welcome, Will Self. So, Will, your story, which is so wonderful, takes us through the London that nobody knows. Where does that story start for you? It starts... For me, actually, outside London, in a place called the Isle of Grain, probably the most farinaceous place name in the world. And really, one day in the middle of 1988, I went into work and discovered in the little kind of, I actually was working for a publisher, that the office was closed and I didn't know. And I had an epiphany that shaped my life. I was standing in a street in Mayfair in central London, very old, very historic part of London. I was born in old Charing Cross Hospital. Somebody once said, if you stand at Charing Cross in central London by Trafalgar Square, you'll see the whole world go by. I was born in a Decimus Burton building right across from the station there in 1961. So I'm a true Cockney. It's also the epicenter of the knowledge, which I write about in my piece, the cabbie's incredible encyclopedic understanding of the labyrinthine London streets. Uh, very much an echt Londoner. And it occurred to me on this day in 1986 that I not only had I never seen the mouth of the river that flowed through the city, I didn't even have a mental image of what the mouth of that river might look like. And in that one moment, and this is what underwrites the piece I've written for Airmail and really a lot of the writing I've done about place over the last 30 to 40 years. In that one moment, I thought, I just live in the matrix. I live in human geography. I have no sense of, this is a river valley. 
I have no sense of its topography. And I have no sense, in fact, if I went to the 30 miles from the mouth of the Amazon and I found some benighted guy sort of tilling his manioc field and I said to him, what's it like at the mouth of the Great River? And he said, well, I've never been there. I think he was a very benighted peasant indeed. I was that benighted peasant. And I got in my car, I still had a car in those days, and I drove to the mouth of the River Thames. And really, I've never looked back. When it comes to understanding the city, not as a network, not in terms of its human geography, not in terms of its history even, not in terms of any of its sociology, its sociodemography, anything like that, but really understanding it through something that you might think of as more affinities with architectural history and theory, which is felt volume, the shape of things and the space they take up. And to me, understanding a city is all about that. And it's not about beginning with the headline things. Oh, wow, this is London. Once the mightiest city in the world, capital of the British Empire that at once time painted a six of the globe red. No. That is not the way to approach this city at all. I live in London as well, even though I'm an American, but some could argue that we're at a fairly low point politically, socially, economically. How do you understand London at this particular juncture in time? I'd agree with that. I mean, of course, I grew up in the city in the 60s and 70s. It was extensively depopulated after the war. So the population probably in 1939 had been as high as eight and a half to nine million. It had dropped to six and a half during the 1950s and into the 60s. There was a huge slum clearance program. The city felt empty. The pubs still only opened for four and a half hours a day. You couldn't get a drink. Nothing was open on Sunday. Tumbleweeds blew down Oxford Street. It was very quiet in a sense. The, The infrastructure was too big for the population. It was a city that I had the runoff from when I was 12. It was also a city, of course, let's not romanticize it, that had a lot of economic problems and a lot of bad social issues. But what strikes me about the contemporary situation in London is that there's been a vast amount of class cleansing. If you think of the great American urbanist Jane Jacobs and her urge and her desire always to see kind of variegated social and economic community within cities, coextensive with their area. All you see in London, in central London, and it's probably most convenient to think in terms of the tube map in zones one and two, is homogenization, privatization of public space, corporatization, exile of anybody who isn't on a high income, and all of the markers of globalization, including a parametric glass and steel skyline of pseudo so-called iconic buildings that really look like uh, enlarged desktop toys. The reality is that the poor have been pushed to the outskirts of the city, What remains of the rump of immigrant labour that have to bus in from Zone 6 live in a very, very different kind of London. And I think one of the most startling things is that London is, oddly enough, becoming a kind of double donut city. One of the things that differentiated on the one hand from North American cities and on the other from a city like Paris was that London was quite variegated in class terms. Social housing policies mean that housing projects are cheap by jowl with quite wealthy housing. That's changing quite radically. The privatisation of the housing stock 
built since 1945, no new social housing being built in central London. These are really decisive factors. So I think I don't want some sort of nostalgie de la boue here. It's a cleaner, in many ways, nicer city than it was in the 1960s and 70s. Is it as interesting? Is it as complex and variegated as it was? I fear not, actually. If you go back to a great architectural story, just looking at the built environment, if you go back to a sort of locus classicus of, say, 1930, at that point, no acre, no acre, I think this is right, in central London, had less than four centuries of domestic housing in it. Imagine what it was like to walk through a city like that. The city you see now, the fabric is largely Victorian and now late 20th and 21st century, what the great architectural historian Rem Koolhaas calls junk space. It'll be up and down like a giant tent. The preeminent example being the Shard, which is the gnomon of modern London. It stands there to indicate the direction and, of course, forms the main parallax, being the highest building in Europe. I went up it with Irving Seller, the man who developed it, and he's dead now. We were standing in his office on the 70th floor. He swept his arm round at the skyline of London. He said, looking at all of these parametrically designed, computer-designed buildings, never before seen in London, before the late 20th century, because there was an ordinance introduced because Queen Victoria didn't like a building in Victoria because it cast a shadow on Buckingham Palace. London traditionally a low-rise city. Seller, looking at this stuff, he said, they say this is built with flight capital, Will. Well, I say keep it coming, meaning that it's capital, of course, looking from unstable economies, looking for somewhere safer. So, yeah, the Shard, it's got a building spec of 85 years. Ashley, you'll still be alive when it's demolished. I'll take that, Will. Will, for your money, what is the most interesting and vibrant neighborhood of London right now? Where I live, of course. Which is? Why would I tell you? Come on, we want all of our readers to go buy second and third homes there. Come on. What I can say is that when I taught my university class last year, all of my students were British Somalian young women. How about just giving us the tube zone, Will? Yeah, east or west? I've been a South Londoner since 1996. Deep South, man. Deep South. I have a question for you because I love what you said about the felt volume of a city. You've born and raised there. You've spent your life there. When you walk around London, as I do when I walk around New York City, is there one thing that you come around a corner and you're like, I wish this place was still here or this thing was still there? Is there a ghost that you still see or pine for that's gone now? Interestingly, I mean, I'm thinking about my next book and today I was out on the northern outskirts of London and what fascinates me is liminal places and cities. And my father was one of the architects. He was a theorist of town planning and he was one of the architects of the so-called Green Belt, which is the area that you're not allowed to build in that stopped London sprawling as badly as hmm, New York, say, or Tokyo. So with a half-hour tube ride from Camden Town, don't go to the market, people. It's a crock. Get on the tube, go to High Barnet or Edgware or Mill Hill East, better still, and you can be in open country with a 24-minute ride by subway. You can be in actual fields with little cows and woolly barlands. So that's where I was this afternoon. And I was reflecting, really, on the death of suburbia. Because I don't think suburbia is what it was. 
Suburbia was predicated, of course, on the office. And with the death of the office comes the death of the rationale of suburbia. And London, first and foremost, is a suburban city. It's a suburban sprawl built largely in the interwar period between 1919 and 1939 in 20 years. So I love that suburbia. I grew up in it. I don't mourn the loss of the material built environment. It's still there. What I mourn is the culture of the suburbia I knew as a kid, which was a very, very particular kind of culture and society. When you get on to central London and what's gone from central London, I don't even know where to begin. But let me just tell you one thing for your listeners and readers. When you come to London, go to Tottenham Court Road, where the brand new fantastic Elizabeth Line interchanges for Tottenham Court Road for the subway. Opposite the subway, you'll see a huge kind of weird open air nook completely kind of made of giant VDU screens, blasting some utter TikTok crap, and people sort of phoning up inside there. Years ago, I played a gig in the building that was on that site. It was a late 18th century townhouse, and I played the gig in an oval ballroom with a Robert Adams-style staircase going round that ballroom, right above Tottenham Court Road. I was also paid in cocaine for the gig, but that's another story. Another one for another day, Well, Well, if there's anything that we like more than your amazing story in airmail, it's your novels and your works of nonfiction and your short stories, so we could talk about those all day, but... We have more of London to explore on foot. So thank you so much for joining us. And we can't wait to see you soon at the party on Tuesday night, right? My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Will. Will, thank you so much. And I'm sorry that airmail doesn't pay you in cocaine, but you'll have to deal with it. I can't take cocaine anymore. It makes you completely mad. I'm with David Lynch. I think it's evil cocaine. I think it's part of the sort of bomb evil that was unleashed on the world. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll see you. Take care. Michael, are you getting on an airplane yet, honestly? I'd like to get an airplane, take a long walk with you and Will, and then start with lunch, drinks, dinner, just kind of like walk, eat, repeat. Let's do that for a day or two. Sounds fantastic. If there's one character who's quintessentially London, Stu Heritage has identified him. It is the one, the only Nikki Haslam. Internationally known as an interior designer, writer, author, bon vivant, man about town. He's also the purveyor of a collectible tea towel, which is a bigger deal than you might think. Stu is a writer at large for Airmail, a writer for The Guardian, and many other publications in the UK, and we are thrilled to have him here. Oh, also, he just wrote a new book about baldness, What's Not to Love. Welcome, Stu Heritage. Hi, how are you? Great, thanks. So before we delve into the who, what, when, where, and why of Nikki Haslam, we need to talk about this British notion of commonness because it has a very different connotation in the States. So what exactly is it? It is something that is, I guess, rooted in the British class structure. It's something that's, in a way, it just sort of means popular in a derogatory term, I think. So yeah, Nikki Haslam's very famous for releasing a tea towel every year with just a list of everything he's decided is common on it. One of them is owning house keys this year, which is, I think, quite a high bar of commonness. 
Now, Nikki has some expertise in this area. I mean, he's well known for those in the worlds of design and interiors, but tell us a little bit about Nikki and the particular position he occupies in London society. He's just one of the most fascinating men I think I've ever met. He credited with inventing the 1960s, basically. He was the first person to wear the clothes that the Beatles assumed, which spawned the look of the decade. He's just always seems to be in the right place at the right time. He goes tailing off now, he tells me, but if there's a party in London, he is almost guaranteed to be there. He attends more parties than than anyone. He told me, I don't know if this is a verifiable fact, but he told me he invented how punks dress as well. And I don't know if that's a scoop because I haven't been able to find it anywhere else. But he moved to Arizona and started dressing like a punk. And then he told me everyone else started dressing like a punk as well. So he does that. He seems to be in the center of the universe. And then aside from that, he's been a journalist. He's a writer. He's released albums. He's an interior designer. He's best friends with Mick Jagger. He's just sort of an incredible man. I sat next to him once at a dinner, Stu, and we had a very long conversation about why whole grain bread, multi-grain bread is so terrible for you and you should really only eat thin slices of white bread. It's a bit contrarian to any advice I've ever heard from a nutritionist, but what I love about him is how delightfully contrarian he is and how he sort of plucks these missives out of nowhere and declares them to be truths. Did you find that in your experience with him? He's very contrarian. He's a man of enormous taste. I think that's the thing that his interior design business has done so well because of his incredible taste. But at the same time, when we were agreeing where to meet for our interview, he kept suggesting Greg's. And I don't know if you know Greg's, Michael. It's a chain bakery that basically sells sausage rolls and donuts. He strikes me as someone who doesn't like to be pigeonholed too much as well. And you can sort of see that in the way he dresses. He, I think on his 50th birthday, he was very sort of a stately dressed very aristocratically at that point in his life. And then he dyed all the hair on his body black and started wearing leather because he wanted to look like Liam Gallagher from Oasis. And then in recent years, he sort of wears giant hoodies and sort of hip hop clothes. He's a man in his 80s. He's, I can't pin him down. And I think that's his intention. So Stu, he's 83 now. As you get to your story this week, he also is, this is probably something that I think is lost on translation over into the US here on the side of the Atlantic. Tell us about his tradition of the Nicky Haslam finds common dish towel and what a dish towel is and why these things are such a coveted collectible in the UK. Yeah, so I think the the correct term is tea towel. Tea towel. I know, it's difficult. (laughs) It's a rectangle of cloth that you use to dry your crockery with after you've been washing up. We call them dishes. Dishes, I'm so sorry. It's a different Crockery dishes. Okay, see, it's very good. (laughs) Yeah, a few years ago, he printed a number of dishcloths, tea towels, with a picture of his face and the headline things Nikki Haslam finds common. It's a list of, I think there might be 20 items or concepts or <laughs> emotions sometimes. Loving your parents, one of them he declared was common. I think that was in his second year. And I think the first year he just gave them to his friends and family. The second year he started selling them for £40 an item, a cloth, which is a very, very expensive tea cloth. And he's up to, I think this is his fourth or his fifth year. When I met him, he wasn't allowed to say what was on it. He wouldn't let me print what was on it, but he read them off his notes app on his phone. And they're ridiculous. Some of my friends are on there, which is weird. Philippa Perry, the psychotherapist, she's on this year's tea towel. And apparently she's common now. It's a very strange, hard to sort of grasp context because the first time you hear about them, you think that he's just an incredible snob and he's looking down on great swathes of the population. And it wasn't really until I met him, he's just taking the piss. He's just whatever makes him laugh, I think. That's what he puts on there. As you note in the story, he's got Henley Regatta, loud laughter, loving your parents, among others. It's all good, right? 
Yeah, it's fine. I think once you understand where he's coming from, it's hilarious. And apparently he fields he fields suggestions from other people. Jeremy Clarkson wrote some on this year's T-Tal. I think the house keys one was his. Grief, I think. Just the concept of bereavement is one of them this year. To show any sort of sadness for a human death is common. <laughs> it's hilarious. And he's clearly having a ball making them. There's something so liberating about these tea towels too. I mean, they free you from so many social mores that felt very oppressive. Yes. Yeah, you're right, actually. It does. I think it's sort of rooted in the sort of the Mitford you and not you kind of style of writing where people kind of are terrified of transgressing any sort of etiquette. And he's just blasting in from the side, just scattergunning ideas about what makes someone common. It's hilarious. Well, Stu, thank you so much for this insight into the world and universe of Nikki Haslam and the thinking of Nikki Haslam. And not only that, it's just great profile writing and such a joy to read. Thank you for letting us enter the world with you. Thank you. That's very fun to me. Thank you. I just hope all three of us don't end up on a tea towel. That's all I'm saying. I don't know. I kind of think if I make it onto a tea towel, that's something I would tell everybody that I ever meet for the rest of my life. That's true. You've really made it then. <laughs> that's the aspiration. End up on a tea towel from Nikki. Yeah, let's all stalk him together and, and see what we can do. <laughs> Thank you, Stu. Thanks very much. He's a great guy. Very fun guy to sit next to at dinner, Michael. Highly recommend that. Nikki Haslam or Stuart Heritage? Honestly, one on either side of me would be heaven on earth. Pretty great. Okay, Michael, we've got your London itinerary sorted. You're going to go walking around town with Will Self. You're going to have lunch with Nikki and Stu. You and Hannah are going to call each other cunts. And then we're going to talk to Graydon about what it all means. Perfect. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yes. And it's a fantastic issue and everyone should read it this week. All right. Well, Michael, do you have anything else you can recommend to us? I do. And speaking of London and a little bit of London nostalgia, London, little London 80s nostalgia for you this week. You want to know what I got for you? If you're going to say Faulty Towers, yes, I do. No. Have you seen the Wham! documentary? Oh, no, but it's on my list though. How is it? Okay. This came out back in the summer. I missed it. A friend of mine, Madeline, tipped me to this. If you want it like just a warm, happy bath, this is... It. It's a documentary that tells the rise and fall of George Michael and Andrew Ridgely's great breakthrough pop duo, Wham! Exclamation point. And how they were just two kids who met when they were in grammar school. Yorgos is George Michael was known then. And Ridgely, Yorgos, the son of a Greek immigrant. Ridgely, whose family was Egyptian. And they came together. They'd always just wanted to start a band. They used to do little comedy bits and they started this band. It's about an hour and a half of just makes you happy. The songs remember like that sort of 80s British version, almost of Motown sound. I loved it. It's called Wham! Exclamation point. That's all it is on Netflix. And actually, we talked last week about the Spice Girls and dancing. This music comes on, you can't help but be happy. So I highly recommend it. I'm sure they'll play it at the airmail party in London. I hope so this week, but get on it. How about you, my dear? What do you have to recommend? Oh, I think you should check out this movie called Rye Lane. We have this in the recommended column of the issue this week. It's a directorial debut from a director named Rain Allen Miller. And it's a rom-com, Michael, set in London. And that's all I'm going to tell you about it because you should really watch it. But it's feel good. It gives you a great intel on what the city is like and what it's all about. Highly recommended. It's called Rye Lane, directed by Rain Allen Miller. You can watch it on Hulu. But with that, we wish you all a london weekend. Thank you all so much for joining us. Michael, will you please read us out? Absolutely. Pip, pip, cheerio. Morning Meaning is produced by... 
by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Al Sanders Stanley. Our chief operating officers are Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet, a new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly, but we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us.